Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. I think y'all like that song. It's good. One of the reasons that we sing at Oxford as a congregation is so we can delight in the sound of one another's voices as our voices ascend to the heavens and praise our God. So we hope that what we do when we worship here is characterized by a congregation that loves singing. So thank you so much for your singing this morning. And it's good that we got our children here this morning with us. I know that it wasn't planned for us not to have children's church, but it's good for them to be here because they'll, they'll like my little introduction, hopefully. It may have some spoilers in it for some of you, so you may need to hold their ears. Who knows? We'll see. But if you're a parent this morning or you're maybe a grandparent, you have a radio or a television, then you know a few years ago the whole world was really uh, set on fire for a movie called Frozen. The other day when uh, the kids were playing and uh, there was a, the television, the cartoons were on in the background, there was a commercial, believe it or not, for a Frozen toy. And I'm just thinking, man, they just can't seem to let this go, can they? For those of you who know the movie, you see what I did there. But when I was a child, the movie was The Lion King. How many of you remember The Lion King? Yeah. I'm a 90s kid, and so that was our movie. It was The Lion King. But there's one scene in that movie that sticks out to me more than any other. And this is probably that spoiler alert. If your kids hadn't seen it, you think that they are listening to me anyway. It may not matter. But there's a certain scene in that movie that sticks out to me. It's when Simba is trying to make sense of, of who he is. He's living with his buddies out in the jungle. He's living with Timon and Pumbaa. And all of a sudden, he's confronted by this old, mystical monkey named Rafiki who comes and takes his staff, hits him over the head, and says, I know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. Rafiki confronts Simba with this reality of who he is. And then one of my favorite scenes in all the movie, and it's just perfect because the voice of Mufasa is James Earl Jones, right? It's Darth Vader's voice. And so all of a sudden, Simba's out, and he has this vision of his father. The clouds part. Mufasa appears in the clouds, and James Earl voice booming, calling Simba's name, Simba, Simba. He tells him, remember who you are. You are my son, the one true king. Remember, remember, remember. Today, what I want to talk to you about is two things. I want to talk to you about who you are and what you do. Who you are and what you do. Now, don't dismiss me too quickly this morning because I'm afraid that oftentimes we get those things very confused. We think that what we do determines who we are. Who are you, I may ask, and you would probably respond to me, who are you? You'd say, well, I'm a teacher, or I work for the city, or maybe I sell real estate, or I just piddle around. That's what you'd say, maybe. And if that's your answer this morning, and that's the way that a lot of us think, no wonder so many of us are characterized by dissatisfaction. No wonder we are so unsatisfied. We don't even know the basic answer to one of the most fundamental questions of life. Who am I? 
age is filled, I believe, with dissatisfaction and dissatisfied people because what we've done is we've misplaced our treasure. Another movie reference for this morning, you remember the hook with Robin Williams? And uh, he's looking for his Uncle Toodles, and Uncle Toodles says, what's wrong, Uncle Toodles? He's misplaced his marbles, remember? And everybody thinks he's crazy anyway. That's what's wrong with us. We've misplaced our treasure. We've, we've lost our marbles. Some have said that we can do more things faster. We have more money than most of the world. And we still find ourselves dissatisfied and feeling like we're getting nowhere fast. So what I want to do this morning, and this is the desire that I have, and by the Lord's Spirit, we'll make it here together. I want to do my best from behind this sacred desk with the Word of God open before you to get you off of a cycle of purposelessness. The only way that I know to get you off of a cycle of purposelessness is to give you the gospel, to show you the good news of God's radical salvation to pull you out of darkness to life, to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's the solution. That's the way we get off a cycle, a roundabout of purposelessness. We get off of it by understanding who we are. But more than just who we are, who Christ is and what He's done for us, which propels who we are. You see, the gospel changes lives. The gospel, the good news of God's salvation, can take your hopelessness and give you hope. It can take your despair and give you joy. It can take your death and from death give you life. And there is this glorious journey that our Lord has called us to embark upon. This is an amazing adventure that I want you to see. Many of you don't even know the adventure because you don't even know who you are. You're called, set apart, to join with God on mission, to go and make disciples of all the nations. And this is a glorious journey that He's called us to embark upon, a journey of being a disciple and making disciples of Jesus. Now, I know some of you are like, well, do we really have to go on a journey? Why can't we just be quiet about our faith? And why can't we just enjoy our warm spot on the pew? Let's just keep it all quiet and calm. Let's not stir anything up. Let's not ruffle the feathers. Well, let me just say this. I am so glad that someone didn't think that way in my life. I am so glad that somebody prayed for my daddy to come back from uh, a hill on the side of Vietnam, and then when he got back, someone witnessed to him, and he received Christ as his Savior, and he raised me in a godly home. I'm so grateful that someone like my mom and dad drug me to church as a child so that I could be encouraged to love Jesus and love His mission more by other people who loved Him more. I'm so glad that 2,000 years ago, a group of people, just a small group of people, maybe 500 or less, that saw a man who was dead come back to life again. Those, that small band of people who were outnumbered 1 to 30,000, they decided to obediently tell the world that Jesus is alive, and that the ones that they told, what did they do? They came and they told somebody that you knew. That news has reached all the way from Jerusalem, from a hillside to a, to a tomb that was empty, all the way over here to Oxford, Georgia. How could you and I really be silent if what we say, the good news of God's radical salvation in Jesus Christ, 
How could we be silent if what we say is true? If God has saved us and transferred our eternal destiny to the kingdom of His beloved Son, how could we be silent if we really believe that salvation is available for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord? How can we be silent? Now, we've been studying the Protestant Reformation at Oxford. We're continuing that study, and this is the last week of that study, but here's what we've learned. Put it up on the screen here just for a moment. Here's what we've learned. This is a summation of our entire study. Salvation, that is, our only hope in life and death, according to Scripture, is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. So let's say that together. Let's say everything except what's in the parenthesis. Salvation, according to Scripture, is in Christ alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. Now, you know what we just declared today? We just declared the good news of the gospel of grace. And if what we've just said is true together, if what we've just confessed together as a church is true, then all of life centers on these truths. If this is true, this is the greatest news that the world could ever hear or will hear. If this is true, then we cannot rest until the whole world hears this truth. If the staggering truths of of God's grace are true, then our every endeavor will be motivated to align with God's purpose for glory. I want to share a passage of text with you before we get into our main text in Peter. But listen to what Jesus said. There's a word that Jesus said, which is always sort of, maybe, uh, maybe you first read it and you're like, how can these things be? Jesus says this, and I've wondered the same thing. Let's read it together. Listen to what Jesus says. He says something radically strange. It was he's talking to uh, his disciples in John 14. So this is John 14. Remember where we are. Jesus is fixing to face the cross. He's fixing to get into the farewell discourse. Listen to what he says to his disciples. This is his last message to those whom he loves. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, there's a lot in there, right? We could spend our entire time there, but what in the world does Jesus mean when he said that we're going to do greater works than he does? What does he mean by that? What are these greater works that Christ is referring to? Well, let's sum it up in this way. What is the one thing that we know that Christ has called us to do? One thing that He's called us to do. His final mandate is our first priority. What did He say as He's ascending up on the hill going into the heavens? Go. Make disciples. He has called us to make disciples. What I want you to do this morning is remember who you are. How could we not engage in this great adventure called the Great Commission if this is who we are, if we really believe that Christ has called us to do greater things than He's done. You see, the Reformation, these truths of the gospel, recovered amazing grace. And it set the world on fire 
with an unquenchable flame of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. Now listen to me, Oxford. Don't just hear another sermon this morning and go away unchanged. You'll know if your heart is aflame by these truths. If you make the great commission a priority in your life. You'll know whether or not these truths are true and a priority in your life if you make sure that wherever you sit in whatever pew you're in right now, you make the Great Commission a priority in this church. And you won't rest until from this little spot that you have right now, that little section that's yours, the whole community of Oxford, Covington, and Newton County knows that there's a God who saves and His name is Jesus. John Calvin is probably one of the greatest of the Reformers. He's probably one of the most contentious. He had a firm grasp, I think, on the uh, gospel. But listen to the way that Calvin prayed. Listen to what he said. We pray to you now, O most gracious God and merciful Father, for all people everywhere. And it is your will to be acknowledged as the Savior of the whole world through the redemption wrought by your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that those who are still estranged from the knowledge of Him, being in the darkness and captivity of error and ignorance, may be brought by the illumination of your Holy Spirit and the preaching of your gospel to the right way of salvation, which is to know you, the only true and Jesus, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A heart that's set on flame for the gospel is a heart that will pray this way. You know what that prayer is? When I read that, maybe that surprises you that a guy named John Calvin that you've heard so much about would pray that way. Do you know what that is? This is so far removed from cold orthodoxy. Coming to church, going through the motions. You know what that is? That's a living faith, an organic faith that's growing. A faith in the crucified and risen Son. And this morning, my prayer for you, my prayer for us is, oh, that our hearts would burn for the glory of God in all the earth. To that end this morning, take your Bible, please. If you have it with you today, and I hope you do, turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're continuing to show you that these truths arise from the text. We're going to look today at verses 4 through 10. And I want to end our Reformation series by teaching you that the truth of the gospel affects every one of your endeavors. Because here's the truth, as we're going to learn. You, us, we, have been called to proclaim His excellencies to everyone who's in darkness. Listen to the word of the Lord. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May we do our best today in the power of your Spirit to be confronted and changed by these truths. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. So there it is. We just read it. And I'll say this morning, there's so much in this text that we're just not going to get to. I wish we could. I wish we could spend all afternoon together and you could ask me questions and we go back, but we're just not going to be able to do that. But there it is in this text. Who we are propels what we do. Don't miss that. It's who we are that propels what we do. Not what we do that propels who we are. Don't miss the emphasis of grace. I can't overemphasize this enough because this is the gospel. Our whole life is a gifted response to God's grace. Our whole life is a gifted response to His initiative for us. So let's walk through this text together this morning. What I want to do is I want to show you very quickly in the time that we have, I want to show you three things. Two, showing you who you are. And one truth, showing you what you do. Remember, who we are, what we do. Not the opposite. The opposite is legalism. The opposite enslaves. The opposite does not liberate. The gospel transforms. The gospel liberates. Number one, I want you to know we have new sight. That's number one. Look at verse four. There's this phrase in verse four that that I really don't want us to gloss over too quickly. And this is why I say there's so much that I want to tell you. But I don't want us to get too far over this one phrase first. Look at it. It's the first phrase. As you come to Him. Do you see that? You know what that is? Just stop for just a moment. As you come to Him. This is the entire message of Christianity in summary form. We are marked and characterized as those people who come to Him who has come from heaven seeking and saving us. We come to Him who both commands us to come to Him 
and who welcomes our coming to Him with open arms. We never grow weary of coming to Him because He never grows weary of receiving us. He is as patient with us today as He has ever been or He ever will be. He is pursuing us as vehemently and as passionately today as He ever has or He ever will be. And He is ready to draw us deeper today into His abiding love if we come to Him. We come to Him continually. He never grows weary of us and He compels us to never grow weary of Him. His delighting in us means our eternal delighting in Him. So all of our lives are just marked by these words. As you come to Him. You say, why do we come to Him? Why is it? Well, look at the words before verse 4. Look at the end of verse 3. Because we have indeed tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So we come to Him. Because we know He's good. But remember this, beloved. Remember when we come to Him. We come to Him whose body bears the marks of crucifixion. Some preacher said the only man-made thing in heaven are the marks on Christ's body, on His side, His brow, His hands, and His feet. His hands that reaches out to us are hands that have known the cruel steel of the nails. His head that receives the oil from Mary's flask have felt the crown of thorns. His feet that walked across the stormy waves were driven in place by a Roman mallet. His side, which held Lazarus and John so close to him, was riven by a Roman spear. And as we come to him, we come to this one who was rejected by men, but look at the Bible, precious in the sight of the Father, and not just in the sight of the Father, but precious in my sight, precious in your sight. You see, when we see Him, we don't see wounds, we see healing. His coming to bleed and die and raised again, I believe that it was said best by William Cowper, and when he visualized this, His coming to bleed and die and be raised again has left us a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. You see, see, we, we know that that dear dying lamb, thy precious blood, it'll never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. This is why we come to Him continually because ere since by faith we saw the stream His flowing wounds supply Redeeming love has been our theme, and it will be till we die. So we come to Him. The world rejected Him, crucified Him, shut His body in the grave, cut out of the rock. But the Bible says that this one that was rejected, He is a living stone. 
He is alive from death. Rejected by men, but in God's eyes and our sight, He is precious. We come to Him because we see Him as He is. And you know who He is? He is our entimos. That's the Greek word for precious. You hear anything recognizable? Entimos. He is our intimate. He is our precious. The one that we hold dear who more than us holding Him dear. The truth is that He holds us dear. And so we come to Him. You see, His life is now our life. That sounds great, doesn't it? His life is now our life. But remember who He is. And remember what His life is. Look at this. Living stone, yes, but look at that next word. It's not so pleasant, is it? Rejected by men. What are some of the markers of his life? Yeah, he's chosen, he's precious, he's victorious, but what else? He's rejected, he's condemned, he's crucified. This one that we come to is always this one who has accomplished glory through the cross. He's always accomplished glory through the cross. And you know what He calls us to do? He calls us to come to Him. Remember what He has? The marks of crucifixion, the stigmata on His life. He says, you follow me. The second characteristic this morning that tells us of who we are, that it's ours because of Christ, it may sound strange when you read it, but it's entirely true, and that is that in our dying, we live. In our dying, we find out what life is all about. There was a story of a man named Ignatius. And I don't have time to tell you this story, but I want to. Ignatius was going through and he was being transported from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. He was writing these letters to his churches. He was riding in this Roman wagon cart and some were telling him by correspondence, we're going to bust you out of here. We're going to get you out. You know what he told his church? He said, don't you dare take this moment away from me. Because I'm fixing to become more alive than I've ever been. In our dying, we learn what living is. Listen, his rejection is our rejection. But oh, it's not the whole story. His glory is our glory. Look at verse 5. He is the living stone. And then look at what it says. We are like living stones. Do you see that? That's the language of comparison. And that seeks to demonstrate our connection to Christ. What's it saying? It's saying that the connection that we have to Christ is an organic connection, like a building, but not just any building, like a stone structure that's stacked. Stone structure that's fit together with Christ as the cornerstone. And through His life, He is forming us to be a place of worship. You hear that? He is forming you. To be a place of worship. This language here is temple language. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is fashioning us, fitting us, making us fit to be a place of worship. So where do you worship, some might say. Maybe a better question is where do you not worship? On your job? Worship. 
in the classroom? Worship. As you're flipping through the TV or you're attending to whatever activity you do, remember who you are. You are a person being fit together to Christ as a priest to offer spiritual sacrifices to Him. This language here is, is so prevalent in the text. This is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Then it says, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So who are we? We are those people who die to the fleshly desires that wage war against the Spirit. This is who we are. This is why, look, what Peter says next in verse 11, after we have our section in verse 10, I urge you as sojourners, abstain from the passions of the flesh. We are those people who put to death the earthly members within us. And this is why Paul makes his appeal that we live, be living sacrifices and not be conformed to the pattern and image of this world. But what he says in Romans 12 really flows from Romans 8. And in Romans 8, 13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You see this great reversal? You see what God's calling us to? This is the reversal that God's called us to. We have found what life is all about. What life is all about. We know. Why is that? Because our entire worldview has been flipped upside down because of Christ. Life is about longing for more than what this world sees as precious. We see something that the world rejected as precious. And we see something that they see as precious to be rejected. But that begs a question, doesn't it? Who's right? Who's right? Look at Peter. Look at verse 6. How do we know who's right? What does he do? He grounds all of our faith in thus saith the Lord. How do we know if who's right? He's, he points us back to Scripture. And what does Scripture say? I'm laying in Zion a stone, cornerstone, chosen precious, and then whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Then He goes on, says, The honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected is the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. And there's so much wonder in that verse. I wish we could just spend all our time there. But the plan and the purpose of God is to save sinners. And this is amazing. Look at this. This is the image that this passage is. It's, it's like God saw us. We were on a, on a pathway leading to death. We were on the highway to hell, destruction. And God sent a Savior who would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's dropped a stone in the center of the path. And the interesting thing that I don't know, I can't explain, is that some stumble over the stone and others believe. Those who believe give praise to God. Those who do not believe have no one to blame but themselves. 
Look at the last part of verse 8. This may mess up your theology, but that's what the Bible usually does. It's good for us to be under the direction of Scripture. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. This verse tells us, listen carefully, there's a lot of mystery in this verse, but here's one thing that we can know for certain. Sinners don't decide their fate. Their fate is sealed by unbelief. But our fate, those who know Christ, if that's you, your fate is sealed by a God who causes your belief. Look at this. I don't have time to show this to you, but underscore the word believe in verse 6 and underscore the word believe in verse 7 and then go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 5 and look at verse 9. Peter is centering this fact that God causes us to be born again. God is the antecedent. He's the cause of our belief. So we can say that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Both of those things are true. Salvation is all of God and damnation is all of man. But look at verse 9. In verse 9, there's this beautiful, startling contrast between verse 8 Look at verse 8. It says, They stumble because they disbelieve as they were destined to do. And then look at what he says in verse 9. He shows us who we are. He says, But you are. You know what he tells us? He says that we are his. He is ours. We are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. So what do we do? Number three this morning, we go and tell. Who are we? We're those people that He's radically transforming, giving us a new way of seeing. Where He's given us a new way of living so that we now see things that are precious in the world's sight to be rejected. And we see what the world's rejected as precious. So what do we do? This is the way we live. We go out and we tell the world this message. Do you see how these truths launch us into what we call missions? And I'm so glad that it's called missions because that word sounds exciting. You know, sometimes it's a mission for me to go to the grocery store, right? No, no, that's not the mission that we're talking about. This mission is to sacrificially live your life for the good of others and the glory of God. It'll cost you everything to gain everything so that you'll really understand at the end of the day you've lost nothing. There's a mission for us. And this is the great endeavor that was started by the God of grace to seek and save lost ones. We are the proclaimers of this message. We are the carriers of this message. Look at verse 9. I want to show this to you. Underscore this phrase in your Bible. Underscore it. That you may proclaim. Do you see that? Here's who you are. You are a chosen race. Royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim. This is why He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, put away malice. In other words, get busy. This is why He says what He says in verse 22, purified your souls by obedience. This is what He says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action. But you see how He got there? He grounds what we do in 
who we are. We are those who God the Father, in verse 3, has blessed us and caused us to be born again. This is why Charles Spurgeon, when he preached, he would say that a Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You're either a missionary or you're an imposter. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we all carry the the banner the same way? No, it doesn't mean that. Some of you have such a torch that you can bear right in your right in your home, like my wife. Her torch that she's bearing right now, she is raising, rear, no, you raise cattle, right? She's rearing these children to have affection for Christ. Does that make her job any less than what I do from behind the pulpit? God forbid. Some of you have such a great opportunity in the places that you work. Maybe you think your job is insignificant, but God doesn't. He sees right where you are. You're there to make disciples. You're there to not just show the love of Jesus. You're there to tell people the love of Jesus. To tell them. To have a conversation with them. I just went to a funeral yesterday. You know what the best part about what I get to do at a funeral is? I get to tell people who are grieving good news. I love it. I don't love the funeral, but I love to be able to point them towards the hope of the resurrection. That's what we get to do all through life. All through life, people are on a journey. They're heading for hell. We get to go and give them good news because, listen, the stone of stumbling has already been put in the pathway and people are either going to stumble over him or they're going to believe. There's not another option. That's it. This is why he says this is who you are so that you may proclaim God has saved us. His grace has wrecked us and remade us and caused us to be His own so that we can worship in a world filled full of darkness by telling others in the darkness that at one time we once were blind just like they were, but now we see. We go out and we say at one time we thought we knew what life was, but now we know that our living was really nothing but dying all along. And now that we've seen, now that we are alive, we live for one reason, to tell and proclaim of His glory once we were not a people but now we are God's people once we had not received mercy but now we have received mercy I'll never forget my first trip to Israel I say first because I'd like to go again maybe some of you we can go together so neat to be able to be there and to walk where Jesus and the apostles walked to kick up the dust on the Via Della Rosa, the road marked with suffering where Christ carried His cross. To see where the church was birthed. To get to take a boat ride over the Sea of Galilee and to even be on the other side just after we safely arrived and then sure enough to see the water start to churn a storm all of a sudden came out of nowhere. But one of my most memorable events came when we were standing outside the tomb of Jesus. We went in the tomb, and I'm here to tell you today, the tomb was empty. We went in there. There was an old British Baptist missionary who was there. He was gray, bearded, 
bent over his cane. He called our little group to attention and he climbed on a rock as quick as he could to stand a little elevation over the people. And he said, many of you have come all the way from all over the world. You've made a pilgrimage. You've made a journey. You've been on a mission. You have made it to Jerusalem. You're standing outside the tomb of Jesus. And you've seen that the tomb is empty. And I'll never forget what he said next. Now that you've seen, go and tell. You know why we struggle to go and tell? You know why we struggle to tell others about Jesus? It all goes back to verse 4. We don't come to him enough. We don't consider him. We aren't concerned that our affections for Christ have grown cold. We don't even notice that we're spending our life chasing things that are uncharacteristic of him. Because many of us have wrapped the things that we're pursuing in his name and so we can't even see the evil underneath it anymore. The time that we waste chasing other things is time where we could have been spending coming to Him. And here's the truth. How can we encourage others to come to Him if coming to Him is not the deepest longing of our own hearts? Remember who Christ is. Remember who you are. Remember your mission. And let's spend our time together, our lives together, as long and as short as we may have. God's in control of it all. Proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Friends, there's no other way to live than to live your life touched by His mission and carrying out his mission. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are grateful that you love us. Thank you for giving us a mission, an endeavor to carry forth in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for all of those here who uh, love has grown cold and they could tell you the reason they don't tell others is because they don't spend enough time coming to him themselves. Father, would you, with your grace, transform our lives today. Father, I pray for one who doesn't know Christ today. They're living a purposeless life. They're living a life filled with despair. They're living a life filled with no hope. Would you, Father God, today show them their need for a Savior and then reveal to them that Christ is the satisfaction for everything that they need. Have your way in our lives, we pray, in Christ's name, and all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.